0: Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the
1: Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome back to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today, our universe, with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest Phil Johnson. But first, for more information about the stable of Mill Creek View podcasts, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Washington, Florida, and Tennessee, where I'm the host. While you're there, please subscribe. It's totally free to you. And welcome to our People in the News episode, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today we are talking with Elder Phil Johnson. Phil Johnson is Executive Director at radio, and Radio Host of Grace To You, the media ministry of John MacArthur. Phil is also an elder at Grace Community Church, where he pastors the Grace Life Fellowship Group, Phil's wife, Darlene, has been his partner in life and ministry since 1978. Together, they raised three sons and now delight in being grandparents to seven cute children. Hello, sir. How are you today?
2: Great. Good to be with you, Steve.
1: Thank you so much for taking time away to come and and talk to us and maybe pastor a little to my listeners. Um, Pretty bad weather down there in Southern California, although it doesn't look so bad behind you. Um, Am I right about that?
2: Yeah, no, it turns out the aftermath of a hurricane is not bad. And uh, the hurricane didn't actually pass over Los Angeles. It went a bit to the east. It got Palm Springs. And uh, all we got was a lot of rain and in the middle of it, an earthquake.
1: Yeah, Hurricane Hillary and an earthquake. You ready to move yeah. to Tennessee yet?
2: No, I lived in Tennessee for a year. I, I can't take the humili- the humidity.
1: You picked the right day to say that it's 100 degrees outside and it's supposed Yeet. to get to 115 this week. So a uh, perfect week for, for a special session in Nashville. Um, your church, Grace Chapel, uh, was under heavy David versus Goliath type pressure to close during COVID, but you didn't. Uh, you won the lawsuit and now they want to find you again. Tell us about what it was like dealing with that and now having to go round
2: two. Yeah, it was, there were moments, I think, when the, um, the pressure we were getting from, especially the county government, was a little bit scary. Uh, a, a significant part of our parking lot, for example, is rented from the government because there's a concrete river that runs through uh, our property, and uh, it, we call it a river. It's usually dry, uh, but it's a channel that you know, drains water. And so they can't build anything there. And they have an easement on either side of it, which they rent to the church. And we we use for parking. So a lot of parking spaces there. And uh, in the midst of it, uh, I think the probably the most sinister threat they made against the church was that they were going to cancel our lease on the parking area, which in effect would have made it very difficult for probably half the people at Grace Church to uh, to come. Uh, the courts, so They were,
1: were going to use the one leverage piece they had on your property being state-owned to make your life miserable, basically.
2: Yeah, I mean, they were threatening other things. They were fining us money and threatening to put John MacArthur and some of the elders in jail. Uh, but the courts intervened on our behalf and said, you know, that the parking lot threat was just too transparently vindictive. And so the judge stopped them from doing that until the issues could be considered really on a uh, on the grounds of our constitutional rights to rights of assembly and right for worship. And that was the appeal that the church's attorneys had made. And when it got to the point where our attorneys said, and we want to depose the county health officials, put them under oath, where they have to answer these hard questions honestly about the efficacy of masks and and the reality of the the death count and, and how many people were dying from COVID versus how many people died with COVID. Uh, and the health department didn't want to answer those questions under oath. And so at that point, they backed out of the lawsuit and renegotiated a settlement, which ended up with the church being paid a hefty amount uh, in compensation. So not only only that,
1: but you have a movie coming out about opposing Gavin Newsom's mandates called the essential church. Isn't that right?
2: Yes, that's right. It's a documentary that was made, uh, chronicles our struggle with the Los Angeles County government and, and the California governor, and also traces the, the battle, uh, that two pastors in Canada were engaged in. They were actually imprisoned because their churches were meeting during the, the shutdown and officials up there actually fenced off the churches, changed their locks, all that sort of stuff. And the documentary weaves those uh, narratives together with a story of how Christians through the centuries have dealt with government oppression and Caesar's attempts to sort of take over Christ's domain. And uh, it's a fascinating and really well done documentary. It came out A few weeks ago and it's about to be available on uh, dvd i recommend it to everyone i i i think it's one of the best pieces of documentary work i've ever seen
1: i thought it was notable and most people did that that john pastor macarthur um asked the world to pray for Newsom when he fell so far um as to raise billboards in states that restricted abortion um do do you think Newsom Newsom is being vindictive by coming after you a like second time?
2: Uh, well, as far as I know, he's not coming after us a second time. I, I think at this point, the government is is fairly well off our backs. I, I expect they will come back eventually with some with some way, but I think the outcome of the COVID lawsuits were such an embarrassment to the County of Los Angeles and and the state government of California. That for the moment, they've kind of backed off. And it was in, it was, I think, after, if I recall correctly, after the lawsuit was settled that uh, John MacArthur asked for a prayer for Newsom, because he is genuinely concerned for the man's soul. He is, he some of the things he's done have just been sinister, and this notion that uh, abortion is is the killing of infants is is uh, a civic good that must be protected at all costs Uh, the zeal with which he has gone after that really does give reason to to give us some concern for the man's soul
1: yeah absolutely right so tell us more about you how did you find your way to grace originally and um when when was your first time there
2: i've been on staff here since 1983 so 40 years just celebrated my 40th anniversary uh, I came I came here from Moody Press in Chicago. I was a editor for a book publisher and we were doing some of John MacArthur's books and uh he was my favorite preacher. I loved hearing him preach. Uh at that point the radio broadcast Grace to You was fairly new and I organized my day around being able to listen to it and uh I loved John's teaching. Never in my in my wildest imagination expected to to be on staff with him. But when Moody Press started publishing some of his books, I sort of jumped in there as his editor. And uh, I think he liked my work. I liked his books. And one day he said to me, you should quit your job here and come to work for me. And I said, okay. (laughs) And within days, literally, I was here in California and I've been here for 40 years ever since.
1: Wow. And how many members has Grace grown to?
2: The membership, I think, just off the top of my head, I think it's around 10, 10 to twelve thousand something like that that's amazing. Uh, yeah it's a large it's one of the largest churches in this valley uh and has grown over the years and it, the ironic thing is the the covid crisis and the government's attempt to shut us down uh resulted in what has been the largest influx of new members that grace church has seen in the entire history of the church amen uh, we really do have a problem with where to park everybody
1: now. Yeah. Now we know why church and state separation was so important. They didn't want uh, the church to have this uh, revival. We'll talk about that in a second too. I hope. Um, are you allowed to say how big the chapel's budget is um, just so people understand the enormity of what John and you have built?
2: I, I would be allowed to say that. And if I knew you were going to ask it, I would have those figures in my head, but I don't. Um, so, but so I'm, i work with grace to you which is the radio broadcast of john MacArthur. we're actually technically a separate organization from grace church uh so in fact my office i'm at the church right now that's the traffic noise on roscoe boulevard that you may hear in the background uh so i'm sitting at the church and the reason i'm outdoors is i don't even have an office here uh (laughs) i i am an elder so i have access to the financial figures but i don't really have it off the top of my head I think it's in the neighborhood of 20 million.
1: Oh, my gosh. Okay. So that is big. Um, uh, Just back to your movie for a second there. Uh, You know, the movie Jesus Revolution surprised the movie business people with its huge box office win, which it tells the story of the revival in California in the early 70s with Pastor Lurie. Uh, We interviewed the director, John's brother, Andy Irwin here, episode 67, for those who didn't catch it. Um, what was John and Grace Chapel doing at the same time as Pastor Greg Laurie when he was doing what he was doing?
2: Um, he was he was new as pastor here. John MacArthur started his ministry as pastor at Grace Community Church when he was 29 years old uh, on I think February 9th, February 9th. It was the second Sunday in February, 1969, and 1969, of course was a turning point year for many cultural issues in America. That was, you know, the time of the Vietnam War and that was the year of the Manson murders and and uh was Woodstock that year or the year before, I don't remember. But all these cultural things were happening. And one of the big things that was happening on the West Coast was the Jesus movement. And so that was happening during the time John MacArthur started here as pastor. And it did result, I think, in an influx of lots of younger people, teenagers, college students, and so on, who were coming to Christ and investigating the claims of Scripture. And so from the beginning of his ministry here, uh, Grace Church has seen tremendous growth under John MacArthur's leadership. it has been here now more than, I think it's 54 years. Wow. It's 1969. Yeah, 54 years. And Franklin uh,
1: Graham was doing his tent things at the same time, right?
2: he might have been he might yeah. have been i lived in oklahoma at the time and was a high school student so uh that was that was all before my time i know the the lore from history but i wasn't here
1: okay um and they just had what was it 4000 or 5000 baptisms back in the same spot at pirates cove um post the movie post the uh uh, uh it's blanking now in the kentucky school that's right up the road here that had the revival again but uh the the, the the revival continues.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, I'm I'm like I said, a high school student in nineteen sixty nine. Uh and I think some of the the publicity that grew out of the Jesus movement, even on the West Coast, reached Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I lived and was partly influential in prodding me to investigate the claims of Christ and ultimately pushing me into uh a a closer look at scripture i was i'd grown up in a liberal church where the gospel really wasn't preached and so uh it set me off in a quest to understand what salvation is all about and what the claims of christ meant and and so yeah i think there's a connection between the early jesus jesus movement and even my own conversion i think that's probably true of probably hundreds maybe thousands of people here at grace church
1: yeah, that's amazing. Um, and for the first time in 50 years, Jesus is on the cover of Newsweek magazine this week. Uh, Jesus Takes Hollywood is the title. What What do you think is going on in culture today that, that could be another revival?
2: Well, I hope that's what it indicates. Although I have to say popular movements, uh, well-hyped, uh, large movements have, have really never sort of met the expectations of the people that try to drum them up. Uh, Most of the work of the Lord happens in small venues behind the scenes, and you you don't sometimes see the full fruit of it for years. I think even the Jesus movement probably spawned as much uh, false teaching and superstition as it did, you know, genuine salvation. Uh, So it's hard to say what's going on right now culturally. Obviously, the culture of America has been on a downhill slide for, uh, you know, for years, I would say decades, but very clearly for the past half decade, the speed with which our culture has begun to melt down and, and um, people abandon biblical values. It's kind of frightening. And I do expect we'll see a backlash to that decline. And, and perhaps a, a large influx of people who turn to Christ because they see the void in their life once they give up biblical values uh, life doesn't make sense uh, I think it was Francis Schaefer that used to say once you abandon biblical values uh, and rationality which our culture has abandoned both things the only the only real sensible option would be suicide so uh, you you uh, and, and obviously, people don't don't think that's a good option. Most people don't think that's a good option. So they come looking for some meaning in life or some means of salvation, some, some substance to fill that gaping hole in their hearts. And uh, um, that's why we need to be diligent to continue preaching the gospel. I think the fields are white with harvest, <laughs> and uh, what we need are more laborers in the field.
1: That's amazing, and you're right. Uh, and we pray for that every day. What can you tell us about working with John? Is he a good boss?
2: He is. He is. He's the easiest person to work for ever that I've experienced. And uh, and I've had some good bosses, but he's the best. He's always encouraging. He's uh, he's very friendly, uh, and and supportive. And you know, I've just never had anything from him other than encouragement. And that's good. He, he pretty much gives the people that work for him a task to do and then lets them do it. He's not a micromanager. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I enjoy working for him. He is in private exactly like he is in the pulpit. He's one of the few characters I've known who have some degree of, you know, fame or notoriety. And when you get to know them in person, they're often not at all like you think their public persona is. But with John... He's exactly in person what you what you see when he's in the pulpit
1: can he carry on a a, a mortal conversation with folks about uh, you know pop culture and politics and normal things or is it always like I listen to every day on his sermons and his radio show where he knows the biblical scholarship inside and out but can he actually you know communicate with the rest of us
2: he can but I don't think he likes it i, I when <laughs> I'm when I'm with him in a social setting. I don't try to make small talk with him. Uh, we talk about you know, important issues, biblical issues, uh, and that's what he enjoys. I think, I think if somebody tried to talk to him about the latest episode of some TV program, he would pretty quickly tune out and, and uh, you know, be thinking about something else. He's, he's not a man who's obsessed with trivialities. In fact, the only sort of hobby or pastime that I know he has is he plays golf. But he does that because it gives him an opportunity to think and, and muse about things in solitude. So, uh, now nah, he's a single minded man. Uh, and it's true. If you wanted to talk to him about the latest Marvel movie, he wouldn't have a clue.
1: Okay. Well, he is 83 and he does have heart issues, at least he said. Um, how is his health?
2: I think good. He, uh, he had the first real scary sign that he had heart issues was on January 1st this year. Uh, and he was preaching. He preaches usually twice on Sunday mornings, preaches the same sermon in an early service and then in a later service. And uh, he, he was struggling in the first service so much that uh, some of the elders persuaded him to go to urgent care and they got someone else to fill in in the second service. I think Mike Riccardi stepped in and, and preached at the last minute um and then it was it was until february that john uh, he was he, he was pretty well secluded and for some of that time even hospitalized while they uh they put stents in his heart to open up the arteries coronary arteries and uh, he made it back for a shepherds conference at the beginning of march uh and then you know pretty much took it easy until easter when he came back full time and even after he came back full time on Easter, you could tell he still was feeling a little weaker than normal. And you could see signs that he was he, he was not at full power. Uh, and so uh, they continued to do tests on him and did a second procedure to sort of correct uh, arrhythmia in his heartbeat about a month ago. And since then, he's been he's been at full strength and he seems to be doing very well. Oh, good. He's 80. He's 84, so 84. he's not like he was when he, he was in his 40s, but uh, he's he, he's at full strength. I, I have a hard time keeping up with him, and I'm only 70.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, even in his 70s, it's hard to keep up with him, but uh, good. I, I hope he's with us a long time, selfishly, but I know he's excited to go home to the father. We don't have to worry about that, but um, I hope he's around for a long time. How, m- how many episodes do you think you've done?
2: Uh that's a really good question. Uh, they're numbered, and I just don't pay attention to the number, but it's probably in the neighborhood of four thousand, six thousand, something like that. On the radio, you mean?
1: Yeah, just just you and yeah. him doing your thing. Yeah, that's that is amazing. That uh, you know, you, you are episode one twenty-seven. So <laughs> something to look forward to for me if I'm around a long time, if God's willing.
2: Yeah. Well, see, Grace, you is daily, so it racks up pretty quickly. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but that is a lot of years. Um, so given that you sat in on every single one of those that I can tell, um, how would you describe John's pastoral philosophy? Is he a Calvinist?
2: Yes, he is. Uh and I think he came gradually to Calvinism. He he didn't start in his preaching ministry as a full 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 on Calvinist. He was he was i think he would have called himself a calvinist but not a five-pointer until maybe about 35 or 40 years ago as he was teaching i think as i recall he was teaching through second corinthians 5 and um, realized you know the the absolute stress that scripture puts on the sovereignty of god and um, you know ever since then if you up until that point if you asked him are you a five-point calvinist he would say, I'm probably four and three quarters point. And uh, since then, he's unashamedly said, no, I'm a a full-on Calvinist.
1: Can you, I don't want to quiz you or anything, but can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Because I don't know what a five-point Calvinist is and maybe my viewers don't either.
2: Yeah, well, and it's probably further than you want me to go, but a five-point Calvinist would believe in, they usually use an acronym, acronym TULIP, to sort of categorize the five points. T stands for total depravity. The, the fact that as sinners, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So we have a total inability to to do good or choose good uh, on our own. If we can't, we can't be good enough to please God. And in fact, we're in bondage to sin, according to scripture. So that's total depravity. Uh, the U stands for unconditional election, meaning that God chooses Uh, whom he will. He sets his love on certain ones and is determined to redeem them no matter what, and then he draws them to Christ. And the L in TULIP is probably the most controverted one. It stands for limited atonement, and uh, it deals with a debate about whether Christ's death actually redeemed the, the elect, those who will be saved, or did it just make it possible for everyone to be like In other words, did it apply to the elect only, or did it apply to everyone? Uh, the I stands for irresistible grace, which is God's power to draw the sinner to Christ. Irresistible, not because He uses force, but because He makes Christ irresistible to those whom He's drawing to salvation. And then P, the P in tul- tulip, stands for the perseverance of, of the saints, meaning if you're genuinely saved. He will keep you in the faith. You won't fully and finally ever fall away, but you will persevere uh, to the end in salvation. Uh, So that's Calvinism. It's a stress on the sovereignty of God and the work of God in salvation at the expense of ideas like human free will and human effort so that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God in every sense so that we are his workmanship as Paul says in Ephesians 2. Uh, and he's even prepared beforehand the good works that we do so that we would walk in them. So that anything good that comes out of me, God gets the credit for. It's a result of his gracious work in me. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm passive in the process, but it means the credit, the glory goes to him. Anything bad that I do that comes out of me, I'm fully to blame for that. God is God is not to be blamed. So yeah. that's in in a thumbnail calvinism it's okay. it's a doctrine that puts the stress on god's work in salvation
1: okay well thank you for that that's going to clarify some questions i have coming up here pretty soon um but tell us about uh, the shepherds conference uh how many years has that gone on and what came out of that this year
2: uh you know the shepherds conference was going when i came in 1981 i think at that point it was three or four years old and in those days they were doing two a year they would do one in March and one in October. Uh, somewhere along the line, they shifted to uh, only the March conference and made it much bigger. When I when I first arrived here, there were only 350 pastors. Oh, I say only; it seemed like a very large crowd. 350 pastors at every conference, uh, but now we have uh, close to 5,000 who come every year. It's usually the first Wednesday in March, and it goes through Friday that week. Uh, and, uh, I think it's probably one of the largest, uh, and best attended pastors conferences in the country. Uh, and it's great. I, when I started here in 1983, um, that was, um, it was shepherd's conference week. So my first day on the job was, uh, shepherd's conference. Oh. It's a great way to start.
1: Yeah, I would think so. Um, about three years ago, a woman asked, Pastor, uh, did Jesus die for the sins of the world or only for those who were predestined, which I think is the I that you were just describing. No, the um, L. The that L, the sorry. L. Lordship, salvation, and limited atonement, right? Right. Uh, or maybe that's two different things merged into one, But but which basically states that Jesus did not die on the cross for everyone, but only for believers. Um, and you said that that pastor is now a hundred percent Calvin, not three quarters of the way there or away. Is that what got him into some, that, that woman's question, is that sort of what got him into a little bit of hot water?
2: Uh, I don't know that got him into hot water. I think there are a lot of people who disagree with that view, but, um, the, the thing is, unless you're a full on universalist and believe that everyone will be saved, ultimately everybody believes that the, the, uh, substitutionary atoning work of christ applies only to those who are ultimately saved and the question is does their salvation hinge on their own personal choice in which case they have something to boast about or was it that god chose them and drew them and and the credit goes to him that's i think the main difference between calvinism and Arminianism: who who gets the credit for our salvation um and and both sides agree that the the atoning work of christ is limited in one sense or another so i don't really like that term limited atonement it makes it sound like there's some deficiency or defect in the the work of cross, Christ, cry the work of christ on the cross the um the sort of the manifesto of calvinism is called the 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 uh doctrines the uh decrees of the synod of dort uh which answered the original Arminians' objections to this. And they say in there that, look, the death of Christ is of infinite value. And if it were God's intention to save everybody who ever lived, there's enough value in the the death of Christ to cover those sins. But it applies only to those who do actually believe. They're the only ones who will be saved. And so, yeah, uh, in that sense, Scripture doesn't say he died only for the elect, but I think that's not an incorrect way of of saying it. He had a specific intention when he went to the cross to save a people and he knew who those people were. Uh, so I think there is a true sense in which you can say he died only for the elect.
1: And I guess the press was just using it as an opportunity to take some shots at a, a world renowned pastor who uh, travels the world like uh, Ukraine, I think, was most recently um, trying to do exactly what he does, uh, pa- pastoralize, right? So, maybe a little bit of that going on. Yeah, because Christianity Today, uh, they wrote about John and biblical counseling counseling, and John's counseling of women. Uh, did that magazine also just make a big deal out of nothing to hurt him, or does he really think that women should stay with uh men no matter what or rather does he teach the bible says so because i know he just interprets the bible not really his opinion
2: yeah no they they did totally misrepresent that situation and if you read that article they were relying on second and third hand testimony uh they, they put the church in an impossible situation because counseling sessions are confidential the only way to answer charges like that would be to explain what happened in the privacy of a counseling situation and destroy the reputation of someone who who was disobedient to Scripture in a way that goes beyond what Scripture calls for in church discipline. So uh, we've just steadfastly uh, declined. I mean, that's a the case that Christianity Today was writing about was decades old. Uh, and so we've just declined to even discuss the matter but no yeah, we, no he's, is, he's, bigger, is,
1: he's bigger than that by far that's true
2: right but to answer your question no the there is a written policy at grace that if a counselee a woman comes and says she believes she's in physical danger from an abusive husband we urge her to go to a place of safety and uh, and we'll even help help her find a safe safe house to go to if that's necessary so it's our policy never to tell a woman who's being abused that she must go back and live with the abuser Uh, so so it's
1: even uglier than than i thought because christianity today a magazine that's geared towards christians would would make these falsehoods or these um these libels really
2: yeah well they you know they they come from a theological perspective that frankly is uh lacking in biblical conviction so i i've not not been a fan of christianity today magazine for several decades uh, mm. i don't think they represent bible believing christians anymore
1: yeah they should just listen to your episodes and and your radio and forget that magazine okay um of all the episodes uh and sermons you've heard this is a tough one because there's four thousand are there some favorite messages you heard that maybe you say, I didn't know that, or that stand out to you as your favorites?
2: Yeah, the first message I ever heard John MacArthur give, he was uh, speaking to the student body at Moody Bible Institute uh, on God's will for your life. How do you determine what God's will for your life is? And uh, that sermon is titled, God's will is not lost. And uh, it's been published as a book a little booklet it's not a big book probably 60 or 70 pages max called found god's will uh and that's that's one of my very favorites the the weird thing is it's not a classic john macarthur sermon because he's not going through a text of scripture it's a topical message and so it's different from a lot of his sermons uh perhaps the most important sermons he's ever done and the most influential are two sermons at the end of the sermon on the mount in matthew chapter 7 where Jesus talks about building your house on the solid rock rather than on the sand, uh, there are there's a couple of sermons, twin sermons, one called "Empty Words and Empty Hearts," uh, and uh, they they are a, that's a a call for Christians to examine themselves to see if they're really in the faith. Is your faith genuine faith anchored in Christ, saving faith, or is it have you maybe deluded yourself and, uh, built your house on the sand. And I, I hear from more people who say they were converted. They came to a true understanding of the gospel because of those two messages more than any others that I know of.
1: Wow. Those are good ones. Okay. And they can be found on the, uh, on the library. On grace yeah, you. You,
2: you, That's right. Go to gty.org, the grace to you website, and you just do a search for those and, um, they're downloadable for free. We don't charge for sermon downloads. There's more than 3,500 sermons on the website, and you can get the audio or the transcript or both uh, for free from all of those sermons.
1: And the book that you mentioned, that's one of probably hundreds that are also available. Is that right?
2: Yeah. In fact, I was just reading an article in Atlantic, the Atlantic magazine that came out on Saturday. I was talking about these AI machines, artificial intelligence, and how they programmed them. And one of the things they did was take thousands of books. I forget the number. I think it's like 170,000 volumes uh, that they got the text for and fed them into the machines so that the machines could learn how language is used, how logic works. And that's where they got a lot of their intelligence is from these books. And one of the things the Atlantic uh, article mentioned is that among the books that were fed into the artificial intelligence machines, were 90 volumes by John MacArthur.
1: Oh, that's amazing.
2: And a number of people have said to me, 90 books, he's written 90 books. The truth is, you count all of his books, he's written well over 200. Um, And in most cases, it's because his sermons, the transcripts of his sermons are edited into book form so that he's got a commentary that covers every verse of the New Testament. I forget how many volumes are in it, but it's around 35 volumes. Uh, those all came from his preaching. He has preached verse by verse through every verse in the New Testament. And uh, Moody Press took those sermons and turned them into commentaries.
1: That's fantastic. And here I thought AI was this evil spirit, but it actually, no, if it learned from the master, then I think we're going to be okay.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm I'm still wary of it because uh, right next to, in this listing of stuff that was fed into the machine, right next to John MacArthur, 90 volumes, they had L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, gosh. So, so yeah. I, it's a it's a mix of, uh, you know, true biblical Christianity and cultism.
1: Yeah, it's but... The Library of Congress, like, uh, throw up, thrown up. Um, I love this from John. I want to ask you about this. He said the only thing worse than a migraine headache is having to spend two weeks in Genesis six, one to four. For those that don't know, the identity of the sons of God, he firmly believes, John does, that they are supernatural beings, and he includes several lines of reasoning for his conclusion. The key identification in this enterprise, in, in this entire passage, is to find out who the sons of God are. And I'm going to give that away at the very beginning because there's no point in hiding the fact. I am convinced that these are demons. These are demons. You can write that down in capital letters if you want to. I'm not going to move off of that understanding. John MacArthur, um, you were right there. You witnessed that live and in person. What do you make of all that?
2: Well, that's a a minority opinion. uh, And I think it's uh, you'll find on most issues when John MacArthur preaches, he is he is very firm. He doesn't change his mind. And that's one where he, he formed that view, I think, from an early study, and he's he's pretty much stuck with it. Uh, but I don't think he holds that view quite as dogmatically as he would uh, some other more important theological issue. That's an interpretive problem that even he would a- acknowledge those texts and uh, some texts in Peter's epistles that go with that uh, are, are pretty tricky to uh, interpret. And there are some problems with With the view that they're demons, Uh, how could demons cohabit with with women? Uh, Because Jesus says, you know, the angels in heaven don't marry or given or or don't give in marriage. Is it possible for them to have conjugal relations? Those are questions that come up and have to be answered no matter what view you take on that. And uh, so (laughs) I I think what he's saying when he says it's, it's worse than a migraine headache is he's acknowledging how difficult that passage is to interpret
1: yeah that's why i love it because he's trying he's twisting all around to try to do it as best he can which i for a man who's read every single line of the bible multiple times and thought about it and sermoned on it uh if anyone's going to find out it's going to be him um what is the future of grace we have talked about john and his health and his age and he's been doing this a long long time if anyone was entitled to retire, it would be him no question about it. Um, but I do wish him very long lasting life and health. Um, what what's the what's in the near term and the long term for grace?
2: Yeah, well, he won't retire. I that's just not his in his makeup. And he's got his mind is as sharp as ever. His ability to preach is better than it's ever been. Uh, I would say some of the some of the if you had a list of 50 greatest sermons he ever preached, probably 10 of them would be in the past five years. Uh, so, uh, it's, he's not losing any, any, uh, ability as a preacher, uh, the older he gets and his father preached uh, until he was 90. I think preached his last sermon about a month before he went to heaven. Wow. Uh, and John's in better health than his father was. So, um, he could, he could still be here and be pastor in Grace Church easily in another, in a decade, but let's face it at age 84, it's not likely that he's still going to be the full-time senior pastor at Grace Church when he's 100 years old. So uh, things are going to change at the church, and nobody knows exactly what that means, because a lot of it is just simply up to the providence of God, the timing, uh, who's available, you know, to step into that role when John goes to heaven or whatever. As far as Grace to You is concerned, the radio broadcast. We're going to continue as we are right now, no matter what. Uh, I mean, J. Vernon McGee died more than 30 years ago, and he's still preaching every day on the radio. Yeah. Uh, John can do the same thing because, like McGee, the content of John's teaching is simply biblical. He doesn't exegete current events or newspaper headlines. He, he opens the Bible and teaches from it, and if he uses an illustration, it's usually a biblical illustration. So it's, it, it renders the material timeless and uh sort of universal in the sense that it's not bound to any time zone or a particular culture i think it, it, if the lord doesn't return uh and you know radio is still viable 150 years from now i fully expect people will still be listening to sermons by john macarthur
1: yeah and now ai will be there to, to provide that too into the next century ten, two centuries from now um Okay, last question. Um, I know that, I believe it was after his heart issues, he rallied an airplane and flew to Ukraine in a humanitarian um, uh, um, mission. How did that go? What were the results? What's going on there next for him? And, and what other war-torn issues that he's going to still do the travel part? Yeah, no,
2: it wasn't after his, his heart issues. He hasn't been to Ukraine. Yeah, it was before. He... He did a whole lot of work in uh, – in fact, my first time in Ukraine was with John MacArthur in, I think, 1990, right after the fall of uh, the Iron Curtain, and, and those com- countries were opening up. And John went back and forth between Ukraine and Russia and the United States, I don't know, possibly as many as 25 times. Wow. Uh, so he has close ties to Christian leaders in those former soviet union countries and uh we keep close tabs on all of them uh, but if john is going to teach in ukraine now he'll do it by video
1: okay that's interesting i was listening to one i think today is uh tuesday and I must have been last thursday and he talked about rock soup and um so that must have been him talking about a past experience not a recent experience okay that makes yes sense. right now it's clear but the man has been all over the world doing uh, all kinds of work for Jesus. And and it's amazing. Well, Phil, I just want to thank you very much for your time for all you do for entertaining me on my, my walks with Caroline, my co pilot uh, every morning and to be able to hear you too. It's been fantastic. And to now meet you in person on the show. um, Just thrilled that you could do it. Uh, Just tell everyone, do you have your own social you mentioned gty.org, but um, anything else social wise or the movie that they can download, you said, uh, anything you want to tell us about grace for, for the people who've never yeah, heard it the,
2: before. Okay. So the website for the movie, I think is the essential church dot. Uh, dot com. I think the essential, okay. anyway, just do a, do a Google search for the essential church and it'll come up. You can order the DVD. You definitely want to see this film. It's educational in this, in the way it covers uh, church history and, and you will learn from it in uh, I promise you'll enjoy it. Uh, my website is—I uh, actually started a website way back in the '90s, uh, posting as much of Charles Spurgeon's sermons as I could. It was oh, called this—the the Spurgeon Archive. A few years ago, I donated that to the uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City because they actually own Spurgeon's physical library, and so they've—they've they've, uh, taken that over, the Spurgeon Archive. But I still have a sort of dormant website i moved the domain to romans 4 5 uh no no colons or punctuation romans four five dot org uh and you'll find all of my old web pages and everything there's quite a bit there that's interesting the only thing i'm really active on now probably is twitter and i'm on twitter uh again just google my name and twitter and it'll come up i get myself a lot of of trouble It's, uh, it's at Phil underscore Johnson underscore. Okay. Because you know, it's a common name, Phil Johnson, somebody already had it. So <laughs> I put underscores after each word in my name, Phil okay. underscore Johnson underscore. And uh, it's probably fun to watch because I, I do get in trouble every now and then on Twitter. It's, you'll be entertained by that.
1: Yeah, well most lovers of truth will uh sooner or later get come for if you do that. So I totally get it. Well, yeah. Anyway, keep doing exactly what you're doing forever. God bless you. God bless John. God bless Grace Church and and uh Steve, you want to say hi?
0: Yeah, Phil, thanks so much for uh coming on here. It's been wonderful and uh I visited Grace Grace Church uh well the ministry Back in the early 90s, my wife and I, well, 91, I think, my wife and I came down to visit our friends. and We went through the tour. So, yep, there's some connections there.
2: All right, great. Good to see you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much. If you're like me and sick of the woke, unfunny content coming out of Hollywood these days and looking for something new and exciting, I found the website for you, MovieNight.com. The folks at MovieNight.com, that's MovieNight, one word, dot com, has the first universal loyalty program that offers businesses like yours the opportunity to attract customers with their exclusive lineup of world class titles. Titles like Daddy Daughter Trip with Rob Schneider, Triumph with Terrence Howard, and Nefarious, last year's blockbuster hit. Movie Night was founded to positively impact society through media. Check it out at MovieNight.com and enjoy the show.
2: I don't understand.
1: Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show, where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, what did you think of our guest, Phil Johnson of Grace Community Church?
0: Well, it was very inspiring, and I really loved the fact that uh, John MacArthur's church, and I tracked all that when it was going on, said, no, we're not going along with the agenda. I know there's several other, quite a few other churches that I know about that, when I say quite a few, at least a handful of other churches who said, no, we're not going along with it. And like them, they got, they got, hassled and all that but ultimately they won their suits or they said nope and they they, they, they didn't so but it was really cool to hear that story and it's also interesting 83 going strong steve that's that's my my dream is to be going strong this idea yeah. of retiring what are you going to do when you get retired some people enjoy it but anyway great great interview with uh
1: with uh phil did you miss me yesterday <laughs> I, I took a long overdue day off I yep. haven't had one in quite a while, but never fear. I was recording a very special live or full hour interview with someone you're all going to want to be, he- you're all going to want to hear, be excited to hear from about the special session in Tennessee, Tennessee Ooh, education yes. and voter integrity and all the things we love to cover here on this show. So stay tuned for that. Um, Got to tune in tomorrow on my next uh, day off to hear that one. But uh, not really a day off from the view because you can hear Florida and Washington now. So living up to the tagline, our world today, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Okay. So we've talked a lot about teachers, the NEA and AFT teachers unions and their bosses, Pringle and Weingarten. I like to think it's just the big paycheck people at the top causing all the trouble and uh, all the harm. So we can vote them out. And get back to some kind of normal in schools but then i see stories like this one out of texas texas supposed to be red republican texas don't mess with texas and all that check this out clip number
3: one country teachers are calling it quits teeing up a shortage but besides low pay and burnout there's now something else pushing them to leave the jobs they love antonia hilton reports Emily Ramser. On the same day that high school English teacher Emily Ramzer won an award for being an outstanding Texas educator, she stood this in front of the Grapevine-Colleyville be school district elected. to tell them why she was among dozens of staff members resigning this year. This community has continuously harassed me for the past few years to the point that there were days I didn't even want to be alive anymore, much less be a teacher. So I'm going to listen to what I am hearing from this community which is that y'all don't want people like me, people who might be gay, to teach here. School districts across the country are facing a teacher shortage, fueled by burnout and low pay. But in Texas, many blame politics. Last year, Ramser's district saw a 40% jump in resignations and retirements after new conservative school board members pushed to remove hundreds of books and restrict lessons about race and LGBTQ identities. I've taught these kids for years to write and to grow their voices and I'm not gonna let my actions say something different. Um, Ramser, who identifies as queer, says she was asked to change some of her lessons and to remove classroom artwork and rainbow stickers. Then, one afternoon last year, a parent told a local news site that Ramser encouraged her child to become transgender by lending her a book called The Prince and the Dressmaker.
1: All I did was give a kid a book.
3: What went through your mind? I was terrified. I couldn't breathe, I couldn't think. The mother who accused Ramser declined to speak with NBC News, but the child and her father say the allegations were false, that the child already identified as transgender. The district cleared Ramser, but never made a statement for her to the public. The district declined to respond to NBC News about this specific case, but acknowledged it has more openings this year than last year, saying many other school districts, not only in Texas, but across the nation, are also experiencing this declining retention rate of teachers and other employees. Across the-
0: uh, I think there's more to this, Steve, than they're putting, a, they're putting a specific slant. How many teachers have left the public school because they're being forced to teach the very things she said she wants to teach?
1: Yeah, that's a Texas teacher cries to play victim to NBC News because she is no longer allowed to indoctrinate children. Wah, wah, wah. So it's the teachers too, the rank and file, dues paying union members. We got a teacher problem, not a teacher union leader problem. They love this indoctrination stuff. Commie zealots is all you can say about them. You can't have communism without the kids. There you go. When they call them government schools that's what they mean next story steve do you shop at target
0: no not very i haven't been in a target store for
1: years okay america first legal filed a shareholder lawsuit against target in federal court over its misleading statements to shareholders about monitoring political slash social risks resulting in a 12 billion dollar loss Due to its recent promotion of queer transgender propaganda to children, that will leave a mark, and that is not looking out for your shareholders. In its 2022 and 2023 proxy statements, Target assured shareholders and investors that the board was monitoring the social and political issues and risks arising from the company's ESG mandates. However, management only cared whether its leftist stakeholders were satisfied. Disregarding the possibility that its customers Black and rock. shareholders <laughs> might feel differently. In May 2023, Target embraced the radical transgender agenda with its pride marketing and sales campaign. The collection including included clothing for children with rainbow symbols. Okay. LGBT themed bibs. Hmm. And onesies for babies. Hmm, interesting. And tuck friendly bathing suits for transgender women. There's no such thing as a transgender woman. That's tuck bathing suits for boys. His reckless move, this reckless move, predictably caused more than a $12 billion collapse in share value, its largest loss in over 20 years. This is not the first time target management has used shareholder funds to virtue signal to leftist extremists, heedless of the consequences for the corporation's brand, customers, and shareholders. After the North Carolina legislator adopted a law in 2016 to keep biological men out of bathrooms used by women and girls, Target welcomed its employees and shoppers to use restrooms and fitting rooms correspondingly to their gender identities. After a massive backlash, CEO Brian Cornell reportedly admitted to Target staff that, quote, Target didn't adequately assess the risk, end quote, and that, quote, the ensuing backlash was self-inflicted, You think? Mr. McConnell, 58 years old, expressed frustration about how the bathroom policy was publicized and told colleagues he wouldn't have approved the decision to flaunt it. These people said Target didn't adequately assess the risk and the ensuing backlash was self-inflicted, he told staff. Now it was too late to reverse course. But instead of apologizing, the CEO publicly defended the decision, quote, we took a stance and we're going to continue to embrace our belief of diversity and inclusion, just how important that is to our company. Target has also adopted supplier diversity targets, including a majority of collections to be made by LGBTQIA+, creators and brands, in 2020. Don't know what the plus stands for. Probably Wranglers and Levi's. And engaged in the odious and illegal practice of race-based hiring by adopting a plan to increase its, quote, representational Black team member across the company by 20%. Sounds like discrimination target's management has misled investors assuming assuring them that the corporation oversees social and political issues and risks to protect shareholders behind closed doors target works for its extremist hard left stakeholders at the expense of its customers and shareholders the lawsuit says for far too long large corporations have recklessly pandered to the left and bent the knee to serve the woke elites today on behalf of our clients america first legal is saying enough is enough." All right, I want to give this guy his voice back. I'm going to have you play the whole clip, Steve. Do not cut it off. Please don't cut him short. John Strand was going to come on the show, but he can't because he's now in prison. Here's what he had to say. Thankfully, Matt Gates from Florida gave him the opportunity to be heard before he was sentenced to nearly three years in prison, which prevents him from typing this, letter himself i need help transferring to a prison camp this place is unbearable please help me he said clip number three two
4: our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter martin luther king jr hello my name is john strand And despite my supposedly First Amendment-protected speech on social media, where I have voiced concerns with the legitimacy of the 2020 election, I nevertheless did not travel to Washington, D.C. in January of 2021 for the purpose of protesting at the Capitol. Although I openly supported those protesters who remained peaceful, I personally was present in my official capacity as a security detail for Dr. Simone Gold, who was a scheduled speaker alongside Representatives Paul Gosar, Lauren Boebert, and many others, at a rally with a government-approved permit for the northeast corner outside the Capitol. I had no plans with anyone else that day. I never engaged in any action outside of my responsibility to protect my client, who herself did not knowingly engage in any violent or unlawful act and had no intention of anything beyond fulfilling her obligation of giving a speech. To reiterate, neither my client nor myself had any criminal intent nor did we ever engage in any criminal act that we had present knowledge to be unlawful. Also. The fact that my client was illegally coerced into accepting a fraudulent plea does not, in any way whatsoever, negate these facts. I refused to take a plea because the government's statement of fact in that plea was nefariously false and because I was not guilty of any criminal intent. But I was convicted by an openly prejudiced D.C. jury, and I was recently sentenced to nearly three years in prison and another three years probation by a judge who explicitly stated from the bench that his punishment was intensified by his resentment of my public criticisms of the government. Six more years of my life ruined, after two and a half years of brutal government and ensuing public persecution, all because I protected a woman in a crowd. This is an unmitigated travesty of justice. I'll briefly outline four key points of grave concern. Number one, the American rule of law dictates that each individual must be held accountable for their specific actions. It is abhorrent and anti-American to conflate and criminalize a single individual with the acts of another. And in fact, the protesters charged in the 2017 presidential inauguration riot were acquitted precisely because the prosecutors only associated them with the specific criminal acts of others without evidence proving criminal activity by those individuals being charged. Yet... This is exactly what the DOJ has done to me and hundreds of other J6 defendants with a 100% conviction rate. They are openly punishing individuals for merely being present at a political protest. Number two, America's survival as a constitutional republic depends upon the inalienable right of free speech. President George Washington said, quote, For if men are to be precluded from offering their sentiments on a matter, that would suggest the idea that reason is of no use to us, and then the freedom of speech may be taken away, and dumb and silent we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. The DOJ's dishonest distortions of my free speech to frame me as a criminal and mislead a jury have led to my wrongful conviction of serious crimes. And a DC judge's fury at my public criticism of the government's behavior has landed me years in prison. That is the textbook definition of fascism. This is the slaughter George Washington warned of and it should horrify everyone. Number three, the Equal Protection Clause and Due Process Guarantees of the 4th and 14th Amendments prohibit selective prosecution. I ask you, how does a premeditated protest action occur during an active session of Congress explicitly for the purpose of disrupting that Congressional proceeding? And yet those protesters are legally excused and publicly praised. This happened in 2017. It was excused and praised because those protesters supported the agenda of the left. Countless examples of left wing protests nearly always end with charges dropped and bail funds raised by Democrat politicians who aggressively and publicly support such protests, regardless of the violence frequently incurred. If you cannot see the harshly stark contrast of the unprecedented persecution inflicted on so many J6 defendants, then you are willfully and shamefully blind. And number four, vertical overcharging is illegal. And the bastardization of Title 18, U.S. Code 1512, requires Congress to act because the executive branch's DOJ, and the judiciary are violating legislative intent. Clearly abusing a statute that was written 40 years ago to punish persons who tamper with witnesses or shred documents in an effort to destroy evidence. It's never been used this way before until now against protesters for J6. The DOJ has only grasped this non-germane statute in order to wield its 20-year prison penalty as leverage to ensure the immediate compliance of most defendants with their fraudulent plea deals. The misapplication and weaponization of this law against political protest is literally extremely dangerous to our democracy. January 6th is fraught with alarming evidence of government instigation and involvement, government cover-up, and government fraud and J6 has brought an open subversion of the rule of law and a trampling of the Constitution. These mounting violations of our civil rights are an unprecedented abuse of power against the American people. It must end, or our republic will be lost. Thank you.
1: John Stand. Yeah, y'all, pass that around to all your friends and family and anyone you think is concerned about uh, topics we talk about on this show. Uh, John is a uh, prisoner uh, uh, political prisoner in our own country. And uh, the more people that hear his voice, the more chances he has of being freed. Next story. Uh, Here are some crucial facts you should know about the far-left Trump-hating judge Tanya Chutkin, who was purportedly randomly assigned by a computer algorithm to the Jack Smith case. Barack Obama nominated her to the federal bench on the US District Court for DC in 2014. In 2021, she denied President Trump's attempt to protect his White House records from the House Select Committee that investigated the January 6 attacks, which you just heard about, expressly violating his executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, and a litany of other bedrock constitutional rights, ruling that President Trump did not have the power to prevent the disclosure Chutkin has been extremely mercilessly harsh on January 6 victims. She was the only judge in Washington, D.C., a city teeming with left wing Obama and Biden appointed judges who has given Jan six defendants sentences that are longer than those requested by the Justice Department. Chutkin emphatically does not believe in the First Amendment. She has stated that the mostly peaceful January six protesters who assembled on Capitol grounds were, quote, not exercising their First Amendment rights, even though they absolutely were. Moreover, she characterized the events of that day without any evidence as, quote, a violent attempt to overthrow the government, even though that was never, ever the intent, let alone even a realistic consideration of anyone who showed up on the Capitol grounds that day. Chutkin has made no pretenses about her complete and utter contempt for President Trump, once stating presidents are not kings and Trump is not president. Trump is 100% correct. It is so obvious that Jack Smith and the deep state plotted to bring on arguably the most vindictive anti-Trump judge in the country to try this case. There is no way President Trump can get a fair hearing with Chutkin, who is a cutthroat political operator that only cares about prosecuting political enemies and not the Constitution or rule of law. President Trump's team has strongly authorized sorry, has strong authority to ask for a recusal at an absolute minimum, and really his legal team should file a motion to change venue outside of D.C. entirely. If there is any hope at all of having a fair judge and jury assigned to a case that a fair judge would in reality dismiss right off the bat, as long as any of this is going on, this is not America. Stay tuned for my thoughts of the day. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount, money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat, energizedhealth.com.
4: Hey, my name is Amy Souza. I am a women's rights activist uh, and workshop leader, and you are listening to the Mill Creek View podcast.
1: Welcome to my quotes for the day, but before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View podcast. That's Tennessee, Washington, and now Florida. Just go to Rumble or Spotify or iTunes, search for Mill Creek View and hit the subscribe button and follow us. Be sure to check out our new business show, The CEO Special, where I interview great business folks doing good business every Monday. This week, we have Larry Ward from Political Media. I really hope you like it. Okay, this was a hard task, picking just a few from this guy after you just heard how many years he's been at it, but here goes. We don't seek to escape this life by dreaming of heaven, but we do find we can endure this life because of the certainty of heaven. Heaven is eternal. Earth is temporal. Those who fix all their affections of the fleeting things of this world are the real escapists because they are vainly attempting to avoid facing eternity by hiding in the fleeting shadows of things that are only transient. Wow. That's beautiful. Scripture repeatedly makes clear that heaven is a realm of unsurpassed joy, unfading glory, undiminished bliss, unlimited delights, and unending pleasures. Nothing about it can possibly be boring or humdrum. It will be a perfect existence. We will have unbroken fellowship, with all heaven's inhabitants. Life there will be devoid of any sorrows, cares, tears, fears, or pain. According to scripture, virtually everything that truly qualifies a person for leadership is directly related to character. Hmm. If we could condense all the truth of Christmas into three words, these would be the words, God with us. We tend to focus our attention at Christmas on the infancy of Christ. The greater truth of the holiday is his deity. More astonishing than a baby in the manger is the truth that this promised baby is the omnipotent creator of the heavens and the earth. Mm -hmm. John Fullerton MacArthur, Jr., born 1939, pastor and author who hosts the national Christian radio and television program, Grace to You, the pastor of Grace Community Church, a non-denominational church in Sun Valley, California, since February 9th, 1969, three years before I was born. He's been acknowledged by Christianity Today, even that magazine, as one of the most influential preachers of his time. MacArthur has written or edited more than 150 books. His MacArthur Study Bible has sold more than 1 million copies That's it for this episode. Thank you, Phil Johnson, for bringing me thousands of hours of Bible verse sermons that make me think and educate and entertain and closer to Jesus and eternal life. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of mcview.us. Peace in our time and glory to God, G2G.